Making that film and putting it out there in the world was the thing that helped people remember what happened at the corner of Turk and Taylor, which was that trans people and gay kids and hustlers and runaway youth, they congregated at Compton's because it was a, you know, cheap, well-lit, open all night kind of place to get a cup of coffee or a bowl of soup. And uh, the cops would routinely come in there and hassle people. And one night, you know, they just got sick of it and uh, they pushed back. Hey everyone, this is Micah Sigourney or Vivian Forevermore. Welcome to Stud Stories. This is our queer liberation episode, also known as Gay Pride. We have a special guest host. She was also the first guest on the pod, stud co-owner and good friend, Honey Mahogany. Are you ready to do the intro? Sure, let's do it. Take us away, Honey Mahogany. Stud Stories is a queer history podcast that focuses on the stud bar in San Francisco. Through stories about the stud, we will talk about queer history in San Francisco and the world. We are going to talk to historians, DJs, drag queens, owners, workers, and patrons. We started this podcast when the COVID pandemic struck and we had to isolate here in San Francisco. This podcast is a chance to stay in touch with our community while also documenting the social and cultural histories of the stud bar and the queers that love it. Maybe you've never been and you're thinking to yourself, who cares about just another bar? To which I say, the stud was founded in 1966. That's three years before the Stonewall riots in New York City, which fomented the gay liberation movement, so they say. It survived the AIDS epidemic and hosted some legendary performers. On this episode, we are talking about the year 1966, when the stud first opened its doors, and also the year of the Compton's Cafeteria riots. We have two conversations, one with Susan Stryker, genius historian and creator of the documentary film Screaming Queens, and another with Arya Saeed, the legendary co-founder and executive director of the Transgender Cultural District. With us today, we have Dr. Susan Stryker, an incredible historian and mastermind behind the documentary Screaming Queens. Dr. Susan Stryker, welcome. It's really great to be here, honey, uh, on your inaugural uh, <laughs> podcast. Uh, that makes it special for me. Um, so uh, as you said, I'm a historian. Um, I, um, I moved to the Bay Area in 1983 uh, to go to grad school at Berkeley. Uh, where I did my PhD in U.S. history. And, um, you know, uh, like they say, it's kind of hard to go back down on the farm once you've seen Gay Perry. I, I never wanted to leave San Francisco. And um, fortunately, um, you know, I, I uh, was, you know, I dealt with some gender issues my whole life. And it's, it was while I was in grad school that I... Um, you know, decided that I just really needed to transition if I was going to, you know, make it to my 30th birthday. And uh, being a trans man, I was virtually unemployable in academe 30 some odd years ago. And so uh, as a kind of a unemployed trans person with a PhD in history from Berkeley, I didn't really have anything to do except learn the history of my own community here in San Francisco. And uh yeah, as you uh, as you said, I did a lot of research on uh, particularly the trans history in the Tenderloin and um, helped recover uh, the memory of the Compton's Cafeteria Riot from 1966. Um, I had a really good um, partner in that, a, a good friend from grad school, a guy named Victor Silverman and I, uh, who've been like friends for decades. Our kids grew up together. Uh, we worked on the film Screaming Queens, the riot at Compton's Cafeteria together. And uh, yeah, I've, um, you know, just kind of made made my way in life being a, 
for, for many years, just, uh, I, I called myself a pervert without portfolio. <laughs> you know, I was, uh, you know, it's just like I had the academic training. I didn't have the academic job. I tried to put it to good use uh, in the community that I lived in. I um, was very involved for very many years with the um, the Gay and Lesbian Historical Society, as it was then known, now the GLBT Historical Society. Um, worked for a number of years as their executive director. And um, uh, eventually I was able to kind of move back into um, to academe. And for the past uh, 12, 13, 14 years, I've been a professor at uh, a number of different colleges and universities in the U.S. and Canada and Australia. And most recently, I've been at the um, uh, University of Arizona in Tucson, uh, where we had a a chance there to do a, a really amazing program in transgender studies, like we were able to hire faculty in trans studies and, um, you know, start training grad students. We launched um, a, an academic journal, TSQ, uh, which is published by Duke University Press. And uh, yeah, I, I feel like I, uh, I finally had the academic career that I was looking for, but I'm now retired. Um, I have just um, moved back to the Bay Area. Um, I kind of transitioned out of being in Tucson a year ago. I had a visiting professorship at Yale University this past year, which you know was a little truncated because we had to leave the New York mm. City area because of the coronavirus. I was very sad to go because I definitely, you know, I heart New York. I, I really do. And loved living there, and you know, I had some great colleagues at Yale. But I'm very happy to be home in the Bay Area now, where I am starting my next gig and probably my last gig as the uh, Barbara Lee Distinguished Professor of Women's Leadership at Mills College in Oakland, um, and I'll be there for uh, I'll be there for a few years, and uh, you know, really. Um, you know, it's like I'll I'll enjoy being at Mills and I'll enjoy seeing what I can do, um, having another having a platform in the Bay Area to do the kind of work that uh, I really love doing, and you know, seeing what kind of trouble I can get into here uh, <laughs> using, you know, my 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 mad chops on trans history to like you know try and uh, connect that that really vital history up to our current needs you know it's a it's such a such a um well fraught moment that we're in but you know as things fall apart maybe something better grows up in the cracks you know and that's uh, we need we need to see where our roots are so we know what's coming up that's right? absolutely right well we are so lucky to have you today and also just in general here in san francisco more full-time because you've been living here for a while um and actually we have I'm finding out or realizing so many things in common. Um, you said you came here in 1983. I also came here in 1983. I was born here in 1983, tail end. <laughs> um, you're, my, all, you're my son's age. Yeah. So, um, and uh, we, I also went to Berkeley for grad school, though I did um, social welfare. Um, and uh, and I think we actually live just a few blocks away from each other here in the city. Um because I'm here on... Yeah, I'm in the Mission, right right by Proceed yeah, Park. Yeah, I'm literally two blocks from you, I think, because I, I, I'm by Cesar Chavez in South Venice. Ah, so cool. Right. So, you know, I just feel very uh, privileged, yeah, that we've got a place to stay in San Francisco. A lot of my community is um, moving away, getting forced out. Uh, that's very sad, and I'm just sort of determined that since we've got a got our feet on the ground here that we were going to stay and keep San Francisco queer. That's right. I mean, right. I don't know if you know, but that is actually part of the vision statement for the Stud Collective is keeping San Francisco queer. So, and, and, you know, this is actually a good segue in, in, into some of the stuff we're going to be talking about because that is, 
you know, ultimately why we established the Compton's Transgender Cultural District is, is to prevent the continuing displacement of queer and trans folks from a neighborhood that has, you know, been our home for so long, um, especially for people who are just coming here, whether it be exiting incarceration, whether it be fleeing abuse or um, just coming to the city to make a life for, them, for themselves. Queers and trans folks have really been coming to the Tenderloin for generations. You know, the Stud Stories podcast uh, that we're on today, it really is actually taking um, moments of the studs history as well as the broader history of queer people in America and in San Francisco specifically. We are going to be talking about 1966 today, um, that year specifically, and the things that led up to the movements that have um, sort of shaped the culture of the city and, and, and our country around that time. The reason we're concentrating on 1966 is because the stud actually opened in 1966, uh, which is obviously a pretty huge deal to me. Um, and it's also the same year as the Compton's Cafeteria Riots. So Susan, what do you know about the riots? <laughs> um, a fair <laughs> amount. Um, and let's talk about that. But you know, um, but before we talk about Compton's, let's talk a little bit about the stud. Do you know um, anything about this woman, Alexis, who used we to own do, the stud? We do, yes. So she was one of the original yeah. owners of the stud. Um, and also, I mean, the stud has only changed hands about maybe four times over the year, over the decades. Um, I think she transitioned while she was an owner. Um, eventually, I know that she ended up moving to Mexico at some point, but I don't know much else about her. Do you have more information about her? Uh, a little bit, but you know, mostly it's oral oral history. You know, when I when I worked uh, at the GLBT Historical Society, the uh, the person who was the archivist there, this guy Willie Walker, who also you know sadly is no longer with us, he um, he organized an exhibit on uh, the the history of of leather in San Francisco. Uh, one year and there was this guy whose name I wish I could remember I mean we could go back and find it you know in the organization's records at the historical society but he was an artist who was very closely connected with the stud and he was telling me like all of these stories about Alexis as the owner of the stud and I thought wow like you know the stud which is like one of the coolest you know bars and clubs in the city had a trans owner like how cool is that um this guy was also telling me that the stud was really important because of its um uh that it, it was where psychedelic leather first took off you know that you know the leather community in the earlier 60s and 50s was more that kind of you know sort of marlon brando biker jacket look is very butch very you know tough looking tom of finland's you know very strict roles um and that uh you know like an only in san francisco kind of moment the leather bar owned by the trans woman is where all of the you know the leather folks were dropping acid and doing like psychedelic leather and uh, so I thought, well, that's pretty darn cool that the stud brings those all three of those strands together. And then, um, you know, in the early '70s, I found this article. You know, I forget which which um, newspaper, you know, which gay newspaper it was in, but. Um, after Huey Newton, you know, uh, had said that the Panthers, it's like, you know, we should be, be liaising mm -hmm. with, uh, you know, the mm -hmm. women's movement and the gay liberation movement. Well, there were Panthers in Oakland who were going to like, well, all right, you know, like if Huey's saying we should liaise with gay liberation, you know, there were some members of the Panthers who were maybe, you know, like keeping a little on the down low. And it's like, all right, this is our opportunity to like liaise. And that the first kind of meetings between the Panthers and the gay liberation movement took place at... The stud? I did not stud. know that. Yeah. That is so, so cool. Um, yeah. So it's, I mean, the stud is just this, in my mind, it's this totally legendary, deep, dope San Francisco place. It is where... You know, so many different strands of our, you know, intersectional communities. It's like they all get, t t you know, it's, it's like they're, they're that they come together in kind of a hairball at the wow, stud. Yeah, I'm a little bit in tears over that. Um, 
Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. I, you know, I actually, I, I think it had, it was the acid because, <laughs> you know, acid like opens yeah. your mind up, right? That's what it's supposed to do. Um, it sort of makes you feel yeah. like you're a part of this greater universal life force. And not that I've ever done it. I'm just saying this is what I've heard. <laughs> You've heard. People have told you I've watched you documentaries that, yeah. on it. Um, uh, uh-huh. So it... Yeah, and so I feel like the, maybe that is actually sort of the foundation of why the stud became what it is, which is sort of, you know, a, a community that is open to difference and open to ver- like a variety of different types of people and creativity and where anything sort of sort of anything really goes. Um, yeah, that's fascinating. That's so. Ah, this is this is why we are so happy to have you on this podcast. Um, because you're teaching us about our history. Um. Just just doing my <laughs> job, ma'am. Well, um, I, you know, so 1966, and this was actually back when we were at the uh, Holy Cow, where, or the, where the Holy Cow is now. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you know anything else about that space at all? I, I well, do the, not. I, I don't know very much about that space either, but I did do a little bit of digging and I found the current 399 space where, you know, we just closed the doors um, on that space after the stud being there for, you know, uh, almost 30 years. Um, that space before it was the stud was Club 9, which was also, uh, I guess, a very artsy sort of punk rock bar. And the building behind it apparently was a, a, an art hotel, or at least for a period of time, where each different hotel room had different exhibits in it. And people like, you know, Courtney Love and uh, other folks, you know, used to be the, 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 the door girl. And there were all sorts of different mm-hmm. punk rock bands, but also art exhibits happening within the bar. And they would post... Uh, different, you know, controversial pieces of work on top of the building and apparently get a bunch of, you know, media coverage. And so that space, I didn't realize that that space had such a legacy of um, creativity and of being avant-garde and also, you know, people just not giving a shit and putting it out there and really being advocates and being sort of ahead of ahead of the curve mm-hmm. in that way. Um, and so... You know, realizing that and really learning the history of that space makes me so sad that we had to leave it because, you know, I don't know what's going to happen to that space now. You know, the stud, the stud will continue. Like, I think Mm -hmm. we're committed to that, to finding a new home. But that the energy of that space and the just again, the decades of creativity and and beauty and art that have been produced there. You know, I just I hope that that magic continues in that in that area, in that in that building. Yeah, no, I, I I hope so too. You know, it's a really, you know, difficult time. I mean, it's like, it's an understatement. I mean, we're just in the middle of something right now, you know, with the, the, the protests over the, you know, ongoing, you know, police state that we live in and the economic crisis that we're in right now and the pandemic. I mean, just like, you know, the rising tide of fascism and authoritarianism in this country. I mean, like it is just, we are in the shit right now. And San Francisco, I feel like has been, you know, in some ways it's like we, we've, we've been even years before, you know, the, the, the recent troubles, it's like things have been really hard here with, um, you know, with all of the displacement and gentrification. It's just like, I feel like the, the city is, it's like so so many people have come here, so many people move through here, displace so much of what has been rooted here for so long that I just you you wonder what's um what's gonna be left, you know, when all of this is over. And um, you know, I, I think this the work that you're doing, you know, like with the Stud Collective and then, you know, with the Compton's Cultural District. I mean, it's a it's a, a sensibility that's near and dear to my heart because I think that, you know, we we who have found ways to stay here who are connected to that older history really have to, um, you know, make sure that it doesn't just get swept away. That, you know, like even if a business closes or it, you know, takes on a new incarnation, that, you know, you kind of have to keep you keep the memory alive, you know, and that uh, you, you, um, 
you, you know, you create knowledge about what's gone on in a space, um, you know, in pre previous times, just to like to kind of help keep that sense of like social fabric and historical memory connected, you know, connected to the ground here. And so, so yeah, it's like, it's hard to know what's going to happen, but you know, let's, uh, let's keep talking and telling stories and, uh, putting it out there for people to listen to. And we'll, um, you know, call that a good day's work today. All right. So what do you want to know about well, Compton's? You know, maybe, maybe we can start with, uh, what made you, uh, pursue the film project Screaming Queens? Uh, well, you know, the, the film project came after the Compton's uh, curiosity. You know, so I mean, back to the GLBT Historical Society, you know, when I first showed up there in, oh gosh, it must have been like 1990, 91 maybe, you know, the organization was already a few years old. Uh, but, you know, I basically just sort of showed up and says, like, hey, you know, like, I'm transitioning, uh, I'm totally unemployable right now, I'm finishing my PhD at history, I've got training, uh, I just want to, like, show up and plug in and volunteer and learn and, um, you know, put me to work. And, um, and so I did. And, you know, I just devoured that archive. You know, I just was, I read everything you know it's like I was reading the stuff in filing cabinets you know like the ver vertical files of loose articles that people would clip from newspapers and I found this mention um that it like somebody it was actually a guy named Greg Pennington who's still around who um uh he had started some project back in the 80s of like trying to develop a chronology of all important gay events in San Francisco, just like by reading the newspapers and like writing down dates and, you know, um, like, you know, this date, this date, this thing happened. And I was reading through this chronology he was pulling together and it just said, August, 1966, uh, drag queens, you know, uh, fought back against the police at Compton's cafeteria. And it's like, what? You know, and I thought, but then there wasn't anything more about it than that. And so I was on the prowl for years, like trying to like figure out what that was about. Like I talked to Greg and he said, oh yeah, I think I, there was some mention of that. And like one of the, you know, Ray Brochier's, you know, gay crusader newspapers or something. And, you know, I just, I was looking, 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 uh, and then when I found the story, um, was actually in 1996, um, when, um, um, I was working with my friend Jim Van Buskirk, uh, who used to be the, um, the program coordinator at the Hormel Center at the San Francisco Public Library. And we decided we were going to do a little book on San Francisco queer history called Gay by the Bay, um, Queer History of San Francisco. Um, and while we were doing research for that book, I thought, well, you know, where let's, we should probably have something about pride parades, you know, it's like, you know, when did, when was the first one? How big was it? Where did it go? And so I was looking through the collection, um, at the historical society on, uh, from SF pride. And it turns out the very first Pride Parade in San Francisco in 1972. Um, it's called Christopher Street West, San Francisco. Um, organized by Ray Brochiers. Um, and so Greg was sort of misremembering a little bit. It wasn't Ray Brochiers writing in Gay Crusader. It was Ray Brochiers writing in the program for the first Gay Pride Parade in San Francisco. I opened that program up and, um, you know, basically it said, you know, hey, you know, we're here to commemorate Stonewall, you know, but don't forget Gay Pride started in San Francisco, you know, three years earlier. It all started on a hot August night in 1966 at the corner of Turk and Taylor Street. It's like, da-da, like, there's the story. You know, it was, you know, uh, the drag queens were sitting around the tables at, you know, Compton's, you know, you know, as usual, when, you know, the cops came in to, you know, make 
make a raid and um you know but this time the you know the queens didn't go quietly one of the queens threw her coffee in the cop's face and you know pandemonium breaks loose and people start you know resisting arrest and the police retreat outside and people were throwing like sugar shakers through the windows and breaking out the plate glass windows and police reinforcements you know arrive you know the fighting spills out into the streets and the the description in the the gay pride program said that a uh, you know a police car was um vandalized the corner newsstand was set on fire and general havoc was raised that night in the tenderloin you know um and i thought all right i got my story here like this is the thing that i was looking for but then i had all these questions it's like well what you know like well how come people don't remember this like is this exaggerated is this like some like you know east coast west coast thing it's like yeah yeah stonewall it's like we got you you know like three years earlier we did it first but you know nobody it's like if it was what that description said why wasn't it remembered why wasn't it celebrated it's like why you know why do we not have you know gay pride in august you know from instead of june you know it's like what was what was the story here so it took me a while you know to try to piece everything together and you know and it wasn't my full-time job you know like i was doing other things but i was also always kind of keeping my eye on that compton story whenever you know, I had a spare moment. I'd like dig around in some other corner of the archive. Um, you know, I would get out and walk in the tenderloin and figure out where things were, you know, just like kind of try to piece, you know, like get a map in my head of, you know, where things were located and just, you know, try to do what I could to reconstruct the circumstances of the riot. And it, you know, it, it took me again, like several years to do it. I mean, there was about really about a decade of work, you know, in, in small pieces, uh, trying to put the story together. Well, where the film came from, um, I was applying for some money to do research, uh, uh, that I, that I wound up getting. There was, there's an organization called the Social Science Research uh-huh. Council, uh, and they had um, this big grant from the Ford Foundation, you know, like a 10-year-long a grant where they were going to fund all of these different, you know, postdocs and dissertation fellowships to create a whole new sort of cohort of um, sort of history of sexuality scholarship. And, you know, I thought, I got to get one of those. And I applied for it. And my my project, you know, if I got funded was I wanted to do like trans history of san francisco and for the grant you had to have a dissemination strategy it's like how will you you know bring your research findings to the widest possible you know public and i i said well i'm going to make a documentary film you know and so i mean i'd never made a documentary film before but uh, i loved film i'd always wanted to make a film and i thought (laughs) Thank you, you know, and I just thought, well, you know, I'm going to learn how to make a film if I get this money, and I'm going to make a film about Compton's, and I got the film, I mean, I got the money, well, we got the film too, it's like I got the money, so we made the film, and like I said, I mentioned my friend Victor from grad school, you know, he's just been one of my best friends my whole adult life, and he was on sabbatical from his professor job down at Pomona, He's going like, yeah, I don't know if I want to be a history professor. I want to make film. It's like, you know, you want to make a film? I said, funny you mentioned that because I just put in this grant application to make a documentary film. And he said, oh, no, I didn't want to make a documentary film. I wanted to make a feature film. It's like, let's write a screenplay. Like, let's do like an indie feature together. And I said, tell you what, if I get the money, let's make the documentary together. And if I don't get it, sure, let's go write a screenplay on spec, you know, like that that'll be fun well i got the grant and we made the film and you know i mean victor fell in love with the project and you know he um even though like i had done a lot of the historical research onto the of what happened at compton's that film was you know very much a you know a, a joint project i mean there's 
making a film was a lot different than just doing historical research. And that film was every bit as much Victor's film as, as my film. Um, so, but anyway, so yeah, we, um, we got our first funding for that in 1998 and, uh, we finally finished the film in 2005 and, um, we got, um, the, our, our finishing funds, you know, came from, um, we got support from Frankline early on, uh, but we got, um, a production agreement with, um, ITVS, you know, which is the, the organization that works with independent media producers to produce documentary film mm-hmm. for PBS. So KQED was our station partner. Uh, you know, we worked with uh, the people there. They were incredibly supportive. We had a great executive producer, Jack Walsh. Um, and um, yeah, you know, I would say it was like fifth. 14 years after I first saw some mention of the Compton's Cafeteria riot, um, we got that film up on the screen at the Castro in uh, June 2005. And uh, the rest is history. You know, like it was, um, it was the, the event. I mean, that ma- making that film and putting it out there in the world was the thing that helped people remember what happened at the corner of Turk and Taylor, which was that trans people and, you know, gay kids and hustlers and runaway youth who like been kicked out of their families. It's like they congregated at Compton's because it was a, you know, cheap, well-lit, you know, open all night kind of place mm-hmm. to get a, you know, a cup of coffee or a bowl of soup. It was like the chill out lounge for the whole tenderloin and uh, the cops would routinely come in there and hassle people. And one night, you know, they just got sick of it and uh, they pushed back. So, you know, I just thought it was such a such an inspiring story of, of you know, really marginalized people, people who are marginalized on the basis of their gender, sexuality, their youth, their poverty, their race, you know, whatever it might be um that um they just said like no it's like we can be here like we can like exist in public it's like we can we can like you know we we have a right to be here and they just they just asserted their ability to take up space in public and it's just i you know i find it very inspiring and the tenderloin really i you know i feel like the tenderloin was really probably the only place that this would have happened in San Francisco, right? I mean, the Castro did not exist in the way that it does now back in the 60s. Right. Um, can you t- yeah, it was just can starting. Can you tell us a little bit about what the Tenderloin was like then and maybe the circumstances that led it to be, be that way? Well, the, the Tenderloin was always by design. Um, it's like the sex work ghetto. It was the red light district, you know, that um, the way cities used to be organized is like everybody knows there's like, you know, gambling and prostitution and drug dealing and, um, you know, the, it's like all those, you know, quote unquote, late night mm-hmm. vice tourism kinds of activities. It's like you would, that was the tenderloin. Um you know, and that, I mean, even the name Tenderloin, it's like that was the name for the part of a city that was, you know, kind of like it's, you know, tender underbelly. Um, it was also like the prime cut of the city because even though all of this, um, you know, prohibited activities went on in the in Tenderloin districts, uh, they were heavily policed and the police were corrupt and they would take their cut, you know, like the, if you ran the tenderloin, then you were like, you got like the prime bit of real estate for making your graft and, you know, kickbacks. Mm -hmm. You know, that's why, that's why it was the tenderloin. Um, And so, you know, I mean, the, the, uh, what used to be the tenderloin was like up in North Beach, Barbary Mm. Coast, and that all got shut down in the you know, in the early 20th century. And when it got shut down there, kind of like the above ground kind of, um, you know, Barbary Coast nightclub district 
gets shut down by the Red Light Abatement Act, and all of that activity went underground, moved out of the North Beach area down to the Tenderloin, which is just sort of being rebuilt um, after the earthquake in 1906, like really dense SRO hotels with lots of, you know, corner bars um, and, you know, storefront. And and so, like, it was just a very dense neighborhood. It was a very low-income neighborhood. And it was the place that all of the uh, prostitution and drug dealing got pushed into by the police. Um, just um, in the establishment of the Tenderloin, one thing that I kind of came across, and I don't know if, if, if you have heard this as well, is that, you know, back during the Gold Rush era, that um, it, San Francisco was mostly men. Um and that um, there was also, uh, you know, there were people f- uh, from China who also emigrated here for the gold rush. Um, and mm-hmm. that the, the it was the Chinese community who had actually set up the original sort of red light district because they could not mm-hmm. own property or, you know, run businesses, but they could sort of run these sort of other operations that were underground, like gambling and prostitution. And that... The Tenderloin was really established as a way for white people to, they saw, you know, that the Chinese were making all this money off of this industry. And so mm-hmm. their way for of sort of making money for themselves or sort of seeing that and saying like, well, we should really be making money, not them. Had you heard that? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Actually, I might even have told you that. Maybe you did. <laughs> Yeah, because I I did a I did a, a a talk a few years ago, and it was at this really cool club rickshaw. The rickshaw, exactly. Awesome. It was SF Nerd Night. Um, so yeah, so I got invited to do a talk on uh, San Francisco trans history there, and I called it Trans San Frisco, and it was basically like a ten minute talk on. Uh, how come, you know, trans people wound up in the Tenderloin? And I did sort of tell that story about um, about how, yeah, the, the originally it was in Chinatown, which was like, you know, a racial ghetto because they weren't letting Chinese people live in the places that white people lived. And the Chinese people were, you know, doing, doing what they could to, to, you know, make ends meet. And prostitution was one of them. And as, just as you said, um, then there were white people going like, wait, there's a lot of money to be made here. And so there was another sex work district set up um, along what's, what's down Montgomery Street. Um, and that, uh, you know, the white prostitution district is what got pushed into um, uh, the Tenderloin in the, the 19 And the original and Maiden 20s. Lane. Maiden Lane was also where... That yep. Was sort of the... yep, where yes. maidens, maidens could be <laughs> encountered. And now it's, yeah. now it's one so. of the uh, most uh, expensive retail uh, corridors in the city. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, we'll see, like, all of us, you know, queer folks and marginalized folks on the outs because of our sexualities and genders, like, we all go to the cool places first. That's right. And then, like, everybody else tries to, you know, cash in on it. I mean, look at look at the uh, meatpacking district in New, New York now, right? It's like, that used to be the, you know, the trans prostitution stroll right down oh, there. Well, or no, well, yeah, I mean, like, I mean, I mean, near the piers, but like, you know, like under the railroad tracks and like everything that's now the High Line and, you know, all the museums. It's like that was like, you know, trans central for yeah. decades. Um, yeah. So. So, yeah, the Tenderloin was the place that was the sex work and vice, quote unquote, ghetto and trans people wound up being concentrated there because of employment discrimination, housing discrimination. They couldn't get places to live elsewhere in the city if they were visibly trans. They couldn't find work. So what do you wind up doing? You wind up living in one of those SRO hotels or somewhere around Turk, Taylor, Mason, you know, like down in the lower tenderloin. And you like find some job in your neighborhood or you're like out on the stroll. It's like that's how people... That's how people survived. And at the time, there were these public decency laws, right? Which sort of prevented people from, well, effectively cross-dressing. 
Um, but again, because the Tenderloin was more of this vice district, the laws were a little looser there. Is that right? Um, you know, I don't know if you would say looser, but um, yeah, you pe- people could do things in the Tenderloin because it was quote unquote the ghetto that they could not do on on Market Street, you know, which was you know where families would go shopping. Mm-hmm. Um, um, yeah, it was kind of like a containment zone for people who were you know gender and sexually variant in some ways. Um, it doesn't mean that you were safe there. In some ways, it was like fish in a barrel. But, um, but you know, you, you did have a little bit more, um, um, I don't even want to say breathing room. You know, it's like you, you were, it was a ghetto. Like you were herded into a ghetto and that, um, you know, there was a kind of life there that was possible where it would not have been possible outside that but it wasn't necessarily a good life i want to jump back into talking about the compton's riots um i i know that we talk about it as being the first uh documented collective uprising of lgbt people in this country is that right you know as a historian i'm always leery of that word (laughs) first because it really depends on how you frame the question or you know how you're defining something the thing that i think compton's was first to do it was the first time that there was like collective militant resistance to police harassment where people were actually fighting back and something changed right like there were earlier things i mean like there was this um something very similar to what happened at compton's happened at this place in los angeles called cooper donut uh, i think like in 1959 yes where that's it's right. like it was this place it was between you know it was an all-night donut shop in the middle of a block between two popular gay bars and like people would like go to the donut shop and get donuts and coffee and hang out and sometimes the cops would come up and would disperse people and there was one night you know where you know there's a large crowd outside cooper and um uh cops came up and people fought back you know things just got a little out of hand people were like throwing donuts at the cops and um you know there were arrests and but in the resistance it's like the you know the the doors to the police wagons were opened and people got out and so anyway it's like it was um you know it was militant it was resistance uh it was collective uh it was anti-police you know anti-harassment but then you know kind of like next day you know things kind of went back to normal like mm. so, i mean the you know, it's like it happened. It should be honored and you know memorialized. Um, but then, it, I, you know, I, I wouldn't say that it that the conditions were not ripe for it to be anything more than like a one off so, in nineteen fifty nine. So, what changed in nineteen sixty six? What changed in San Francisco or the world after the Compton's riots? Well, I mean, a lot of it has to do with the rising civil rights movement. It's like there was just a different um, vibe about minority rights. Um, and, you know, a, a, you know, it, it, people were just much more willing to assert themselves, I think, and to, to think of themselves as a member of an oppressed or subjugated minority population mm-hmm. that should be entitled to take up public space. That was really different between 59 and 66. In the Tenderloin, um, there was an awful lot of neighborhood organizing. Um, uh, The Johnson administration had announced the war on poverty and there was like a huge infusion of federal funds that people were scrambling to get their hands on and to use for community needs rather than like going into the pockets of you know, developers or politically connected people, you know, so that it wasn't really going to serve its intended purpose. So the, the Tenderloin was organizing. There were, there were people, I mean, like, it was like, you know, door to door, community meetings, um, consciousness raising. I mean, it was like, you know, organize 
educate, agitate, you know, it's just like there was this movement in the tenderloin. Um, you know, the war in Vietnam is going on, you know, that just turned up the volume mm-hmm. on everything. Um, you know, it's like with a lot of military uh, personnel coming through San Francisco on their way to Vietnam. Um, you know, you had like all these, you know, armed service members going to bars and clubs in the Tenderloin, you know, looking to, you know, entertain themselves before they, you know, went off to Southeast Asia. Um, you had heightened military policing going on um, uh, in the Tenderloin because of that. So, you know, the police presence is really amped up. You know, it's a more militarized situation. And the other thing that's going on is that redevelopment was really getting underway. You know, that Mm. they were just starting to tear down uh, what used to be called Skid Row, south of Market. You know, everything that's now the Yerba Buena Center was a lot like the Tenderloin, you know. And it's like all of that just got bulldozed. And so the Tenderloin was really the last pocket of like low-income housing in the city so it was just a pressure cooker you know and that was a lot of the there was a lot of the filipino community was very much centralized in the south of market yeah, area well. yeah well right it's like i was gonna say not the tenderloin but along um along um sixth street mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah and actually the place that became the filipino cultural center on sixth street was the first gay community center was the sir center that's right uh yeah yeah. Yeah, it went from gay to Filipino. It's cool. And now there's a there's a Filipino cultural district and now there's also the transgender cultural district right there as well. So it's it's all coming full circle. That's right. <laughs> well, there was a lot that was happening in 1966. Um, we actually have a list of things that have happened. We mentioned some of them. You know, obviously the civil rights movement was underway. We were deep in the Cold War at the time. It was the beginning of the Vietnam War, um, the ramping up of the space race. Um, also, additionally, in 1969, um, their newly full-color TVs uh, were filled with images of protests and war and uh, grainy images of our planet taken from orbit. Um, so our whole sort of vision of what the world looks like and who we were and, and our place in it was, was, was changing and being looked at from a different perspective. Um, yeah. We had the first successful artificial heart surgery. The first woman to run the Boston Marathon was in 1966. Thousands of anti-war protesters picketing the White House, the Supreme Court ruling for what we now call Miranda rights, um, Miranda versus Arizona, Uh, the founding of NOW, the National Organization for Women, and the signing of the Freedom of Information Act. So a lot of political turbulence, but also a lot of amazing, uh, I think, social gains that came out. Yeah, I think so. You know, things were, you know, it... I really think of like 66 as the year that um, uh, it's kind of like the the 50s really ended and the 60s really started, you know, in Mm. the six in in 1966. It was when, you know, like if you think about the baby boomer generation, you know, like the people born like 1946 forward, you know, it's like the baby boomer generation. It's like they're the oldest ones are 20. You know, and little younger members of the baby boom generation are, you know, in their teens. And like this, this is the moment when the first post-World War II generation is really, you know, coming into their adulthood and, you know, their world's a really different world than their parents' world. It's not the Depression. It's not World War II. You know, they're awash in... You know, sort of, you know, consumerism, they're awash in, um, you know, the, the society of the spectacle, you know, that, that comes, falls into place, you know, post, post-World War Two, And, it, you know, it's a more psychedelic world in some ways. It's like, it's in color instead of black and white. You know, it's like, it's, there's, there's this sense of things really kind of bursting at the seams in the mid-1960s. And I would say nowhere else like San Francisco. I mean, San Francisco was the epicenter of a lot of that. Mostly because and of the acid, right? I think so, you know? <laughs> um, you know, and don't, I mean, don't underestimate the power of, you know, changing your mind, you know? 
Um, I think, um, I mean, I'm not going to go off and preach on psychedelics just at the moment, but, you know, I think they got a bad rap because, um, I mean, they were criminalized and, you know, it was kind of like, oh, you know, thinking of the 60s, like the whole thing was just a bad acid trip, but they're really powerful drugs that like change your perception. And that, you know, when you have like thousands and thousands of people, you know, like decentering their egos and, you know, just knowing in their bodies that it's like reality can be different than you've been told that it was. It's like, that's really politically powerful. And I'm actually quite thrilled that, you know, there's kind of a psychedelic renaissance going on right now, because I think um, at this moment when we need to be, you know, literally like rebuilding a world and not putting it back together the same way, it's like there's, you know, something that can be quite useful, I think, about that kind of like, that sense of like, if we have to imagine otherwise, it's like, you know, a little little acid trip is like going to be part of, you know, how we learn to imagine otherwise. And, you know, I don't, you know, you know, any substance can be abused, right? But it's just like, I think that there's something really powerful in psychedelics. You know, I, th- I think more people should, uh, you know, cautiously explore them. I think it's part of... It's part of social change. Is that your recommendation as a doctor? Uh, I am not <laughs> that kind of doctor. But, you know, I'll just say, you know, personally, it's like, you know, I really value my psychedelic experiences. You know, mm-hmm. I, um, you know, I, I, I do it. I, I use LSD, I use mushrooms, I use ketamine. You know, it's like not, you know, all the time, but it's like with some you know, some regularity. It's like as, you know, part of a very mindful practice of just reminding me, it's like things can be otherwise than we think we know. Right. You know, I just think that's important. And that's, you know, that maybe is my San San Francisco identification. (laughs) Yeah, sensibilities. It's like, it's good. It's like, it's good to get outside yourself, you know? Absolutely. Um, I could talk to you forever about all of these things. Um, but I do, I did want to mention that, you know, we uh, did a little bit of research and, you know, the Compton's riots happened in 1966. The stud opened in 1966, but there was also the Hunter's Point social uprising. Yeah. Um, do you, do you know very much about that? Um, yeah. And actually, um, one of the, um, one of the problems that I ran into doing research on Compton, it's like that best description that I found from Ray Brochiers. He says, it was a hot August night in 1966. And I'm like, well, great, there's a clue. It's like, go to the weather records and like find the hot August nights. It's like, there were no hot August nights in 1966. Mm. Which is like, also typical for San Francisco. It's not usually hot. Right. But when does it start getting hot? In September. Maybe September. September. Yeah. And and um, uh, when were the Hunter's Point riots? September 27th, 1966. Exactly. And it was hot. And you know who was there? Ray Brochiers. Ah. Right. And when he was writing in 1972, he kind of conflated memories of being at Compton's and memories of being at Hunter's Point. But um, So it may not have been hot. It was not <laughs> hot that August night. Um, but it was hot that September night when there was protest at Hunter's Point. You know, that... Um, it's the same same old sad story uh, that you know is is told too often. You know, it's the thing that has people in the streets right now. But you know, September twenty seventh, mm-hmm. uh, SFPD uh, shot and killed Matthew Johnson, a teenager who was uh, fleeing the scene of a stolen car, and um, you know, the neighborhood just went up. Mm-hmm. You know, as as it should have. So you mentioned the National Guard and the California Highway Patrol were, 
were deployed and that Governor Pat Brown um, well, or they I, were... I didn't mention I didn't mention that yet, but you can. So, so the National Guard and California Highway Patrol were deployed by uh, Governor Pat Brown, and um, martial law was imposed until October first. Uh, those four, those four days actually saw multiple escalations by SFPD and the mayor, uh, including the deployment of the National Guard, the shooting of a packed community center by SFPD after one uh, officer yelled "I'm hit" in reference to being hit by a rock. Uh, the implementations of curfews and then martial law uh, on only the neighborhoods of Hunters Point and the Fillmore, the city specifically predominantly black neighborhoods, uh, kind of, you know, it, it does kind of place us to where we are today in that we are, you know, in this position where there are these national protests that are happening, including in San Francisco in response to uh, uh, police killings. And, you know, we didn't quite institute martial law but we did instant the mayor did institute a curfew and uh there was uh, a military response by sfpd and by uh i don't know if the coast guard was involved or who was involved there was definitely literally hundreds of officers in military gear in the streets and military vehicles uh which is incredibly frightening um and also uh you know i I still do not understand why, uh, I guess why we're here again. <laughs> I, I get, I do understand. I understand because, you know, we are in a moment in time where, uh, the nation, in many ways in that the nation is on lockdown, <laughs> even if we're not on a military lockdown, we are on lockdown because of COVID-19, the uh, economy is struggling, is at its lowest point since the Great Depression. Um, and so people are out of work, uh, freaking out about how they're going to pay their bills. The government hasn't been very much help. Uh, people are forced to stay home and not work. And there are all these police killings that are happening across the, the nation, whether it be Breonna Taylor or George Floyd um, or any number of folks that have died in the last month while we've been under isolation so we it is like we were in a pressure cooker and it was just that one more thing that allowed people were just didn't have much to do were already stressed out and one more thing led to them exploding and marching on the street but that the response is to put the military out there i think is what is scary to me because at, at that point we are basically at war with our own people right um well, I think the government has always been at war with some of its own yeah. people, you know, um, and that, you know, there's a there's a civil war that is just running through the fabric of this nation that it's a seam. It wasn't just an event. I mean, it flared up 1861 to 1865, but there's an ongoing civil war in this country and that, um, you know, when the pressure cooker is is boiling, you know. It's just like that that um, that structural conflict that we have. It just if it, it flares up, and you know, it's it's like with so much in society unraveling right now. It's like well, you know, it's like it's no surprise that you know that we're we're seeing the violence that we've seen from the police. It's like you know. And it's no surprise that that people are that that they've just like reached a, a point right now because it, it is an unprecedented historical moment of just basically saying like it's like shit I told you before you know just like this this is not okay and it's like and we really mean it so what are you gonna do and it's like and this is honestly the first time in my you know almost almost 60 years on this planet now that I have seen a, a better moment for like pushing for police abolitionism, you know, abolition of the prison industrial complex, real like structural change in the economy. It's like, it's like, if not now, yeah. when, you know? And, and, um, and so, so it's, yeah, I think it's like it's like in these moments that it's really good to remember 
that like resistance has happened in the past that the place that we're in is in some ways not a new place it's like all the same old problems are right up at the surface and it is like we who live in the present who like maybe have a chance to change something yeah i mean it it definitely seems that we are in that point in time in history where we have the opportunity to really affect change and to you know hold our you know there is the political will now we are at a moment where the political will yeah. exists and where the american people are galvanized um and we should take advantage of that my fear as you know as a black person as someone who has sort of seen this ebb and flow of civic engagement from the american public you know my worry is you know that this will not be sustained because it cannot happen in a few weeks this energy needs to be sustained for a period of time in order for change to happen laws are not changed in a day or a month you know sometimes it's six months to a year to two years to get things passed that will actually make a difference Mm -hmm. and so i just hope that this isn't a flash in the water and that this like we're this is able to hold the nation's attention enough or for long enough for change to actually happen. Yeah, I I hope so too, you know, and, you know, and I don't, I don't put all my faith in changing the laws, you know, it's like laws are important, but laws only get you so far, you know, I mean, like you look at all the changes that have happened in, um, I mean, not even law, but just like, you know, administrative practices about like, okay, oh, like don't use chokeholds or, you know, wear body cameras or whatever. It's like you can make all of these like changes and if people's hearts and minds are not different, you know, it's like, it's not going to make any difference, you know? And, and, you know, if the people don't demand what, what we need, it's like, and if, you know, it's like, and it's like, and I don't blame people for not like rising up because it's like, there is, you know, maybe not as literally as, as with George Floyd, but it's like, there are boots on our necks, you know, that's like in all kinds of ways, you know, holding us down. And, you know, it's like with people rising up right now, just like, this is a moment like the, unlike any that I have, I have seen, you know, where, where something different could perhaps happen where like the people are just going to say like, no, we're not going to go back to what it was like. You got people in Minneapolis right now saying abolish the police, you know, like the mayor comes out to try to talk people down and they shame the mayor, you know, out of this public meeting, you know, it's like, he's got to like do his perp walk through the crowd, you know, just like that is, you know, that is astounding. You know, that, you know, that you've got generals calling out presidents to like back, you know, back off, you know, it's like, it's, it's, it's something that we have not seen before. And so, you know, it's like, I'm thinking like, is this truly unprecedented? I'm like, well, there haven't been political assassinations yet. You know, the left is not bombing buildings yet. It's like, I mean, there were things that were going on in the 60s and early 70s that were, are not happening right. right now. But it's just like this idea of, um, you know, like this this sort of mass movement of the people right now. I'm just saying like, I am sick to death of what's happening and it's like, it's not going to be like it was before. It's like before, you know, like in January, like three months ago or six months ago, just like, it's like that world is gone, you know, and what new world is coming. And some things are going to, I mean, some things are going to be worse, but maybe some things are going to be yeah. better too, you know? And it's like, it's that holding on to like that sense of what could actually be different, you know, and like really imagining like how different the world could be. What if, what would it be like if police officers were just like people who investigated crimes that mm-hmm. had happened, you know? Uh, what if like you had like community mental health mm-hmm. workers and nurses like happening people or helping people who are having mental health crisis? What if you're like steering people who are having substance abuse problems into like someplace where like they can get help mm-hmm. instead of throwing them in jail what if you had jobs for people so they didn't need to you mm-hmm. know, steal you know to, or a universal like, basic what, income what, or what something if, what if you had universal basic income universal mm-hmm. health care you know like what if you had um you know neighborhood groups where people like just keep an eye on what's going on mm-hmm. around them 
you know, rather than like, not even like community policing. It's like, wh- wh- why do we need, uh, you know, uh, this, this institution that comes out of like the mil- the paramilitary suppression of the population to be something that like gets our public dollars. You know, it's like, it's like you could not have, have said six months ago, let's abolish the police and be thought of anything except somebody on the far left fringed who's like totally irrelevant and you've got city you know you've got you know the mayors of new york and los angeles saying like oh we're going to cut the police budgets you've got elected officials saying we need to abolish the police it's like what if we really thought through the question of what does public safety actually mean what does it mean to protect and serve it's like do do people like need to have like armored personnel carriers in our streets you know it's like no you know, and if, if it's like, the, you know, it, I, I think about that slogan from um, from Ben Franklin back in the, you know, Revolutionary War days where he says, if we don't all hang together, we're all going to mm. hang separately. You know, it's like, but people are hanging together right now. And, you know, I think this is the moment to like not, um, to not play small, yeah. you know. This is the moment to just like really put out your vision of what, the world should be that you know the way you want to live in it and like let's see what we can get i think that's a great note to end on um it's feel i'm feeling very hopeful by your words i just want to thank you you know dr susan Stryker, for joining us today um talking to us about the history of our city and giving us a little bit of hope for our future so thank you so much for your time hey thank you for the soapbox really appreciated uh, being here Thank you all for listening to Stud Stories. If you liked this episode and don't want to miss any future Stud Stories, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please take the time to rate and review us. Your reviews and ratings help keep us up there in the iTunes ranking, which means more rad queers and new listeners can find us. If you really want to support the Stud and help this legendary queer bar find its forever home, please subscribe to our Patreon account. Patreon subscribers get early access to stud stories, special access to our archival research materials, and more. To get your very own stud sweatshirt, t-shirt, or tank, or to find out about new merch and all the other stud updates, please visit our website, studsf.com. And lastly, but certainly not leastly, since we can't party with you in person right now, we invite you to join us every Saturday at 6.30 p.m. for our weekly virtual drag show, Drag Alive, at twitch.tv slash drag alive. Stud Stories is produced and edited by Tara Haywood, written and produced by Vivian Forevermore, a.k.a. Micah Sigourney, along with production manager and researcher Ben McGrath and music by Paige Turner. I was your host, Honey Mahogany. Stay studly, everyone.